This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now you're all welcome along, and we are rattling along, would you believe, towards our 40th edition of the Business Impact Podcast. It's a little bit akin to a vaccine rollout. It may appear slow, but there is underlying progress towards our ultimate goal. Now, in the intro to this podcast, you'll have heard me very specifically saying that we tackle the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. It is a big claim. And hopefully on most episodes, we do meet that standard. But it does mean that we are delving into a lot of serious sounding stuff, big themes. But we also try to be humble in one way, which is that we never promise to answer any question definitively. It's never settled. It's always more debate, more comeback on any particular topic or question. And one of those ones that we have looked at taking on on a bite-sized basis is climate change. Um, Taking things on thinking on a bite-sized basis, whether it's eating elephants or addressing big societal issues is always the right way to go. And when it comes to climate change on this podcast, we've had a number of different pieces, hopefully moving towards some logical endpoint. We've heard on previous podcasts what boards might do in relation to addressing climate change with Dr. Andreas Hopner here at the school. We've also had Dr. Julie Byrne, and she talked to us a little bit about trying to integrate the worlds of finance and climate change. And today we're asking probably a more provocative question, which is, does the switch to a carbon neutral future leave winners and losers in its wake and what can we do about that and um, for example if you are an enthusiastic believer in climate change but you still happen to earn your living in a sector that burns fossil fuels what for example if you're a worker in a, a coal-fired power station or you earn a living from the sale and manufacture of a petrol-based car what about those of course working in the aviation sector is another group we would think of so this list of potential losers from the switch to carbon neutrality it's quite long And how the coming change will impact communities dependent on these sectors is a growing area of debate in what is called the just transition. And my guest today is going to talk to us a little bit about that. She also happens to be our first ever Dutch guest on Business Impact. And her name is Gertje Schoutima. She's also the Associate Professor at the UCD Business School. And intriguingly, to me at least, she describes herself as an environmental psychologist. Um, Gertje, you're very welcome to Business Impact. Thank you very much. And I have have, um, made my best attempt to pronounce your surname, but I think you could do a far better job. So let's hear a proper blast of what (laughs) your surname sounds like, because it's very Dutch sounding. My surname sounds like Schoutema. Ah, that's why I didn't make a good go of it. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, I'll be just referring to you as Gertje for most of this podcast. We won't have to come back to that territory, which will save my blushes somewhat. (laughs) Listen, you're very welcome to, to the podcast. I've been looking to get you on for quite a while because I think your research is very interesting um, and particularly looking at how the transition to this new economy we're all hoping to build is going to happen and how we can take some of the, the socially damaging elements of it out. But before I get to any of that, I was intrigued, as I said, by your title um, of your, yourself as a researcher, a environmental psychologist. I always think of psychology as being to do purely with the human mind, but of course it's so much more broader than that. Can you tell me a little bit about why you describe yourself as thus and what it actually means in terms of doing real live research in a university? So I think you, like most people, would associate a psychologist very much with clinical psychologists dealing with the human mind. 
But actually, psychology deals a lot with human behaviour in general, trying to explain how and why people behave the way they do, why they think the way they do. So my work very much focuses on explaining and understanding people's sustainable behaviour. Why do people behave sustainably? Uh, Why did they not behave sustainably? What are their motivations? How might you actually change that, that side of uh, things? Yes, because we, we do have a tendency to think of engineers as, as climate change and change as being a kind of a feat of engineering, changing one sort of economic paradigm to another, getting people to move along and, and show them the benefits of this re-engineered future they have. But things are not really that simple, are, are they? Well, engineers tend to focus on the technical side. How might we um, change technologies? What can we do in terms of infrastructure, uh, devices, etc., to change the world? But obviously, there's a social component to that as well. How do people use it? Do they uh, want to accept new infrastructure? So, and that's the work that psychologists look at very much. And how did you become interested personally in how change and technology impacts on communities? Was there something that drew you in there from your own point of view? I started off being very interested in sustainability and issues around it. And what I find very amazing, if you talk to people, most people will say the environment is very important. Um, We want to create a world that's better for future generations. And then I kept wondering, but why do very often people not behave accordingly? Why do they do all these things that are not that sustainable? And how might we explain the difference to that? And that's been a fascination for a very long time. And where you hail from, Gertje, you know, we, there's a, certainly a sense that the Netherlands is obviously because of erosion from the sea and so on is possibly decades and maybe even longer ahead of other countries. Was there any sort of anything in your own national background that made you think about these issues? Well, if you look at the Netherlands, it's also a very densely populated uh, area. So we have 17 million inhabitants. And that means that you have to live together on a very small space. And that means there's a lot of tension, a lot of trade-offs that people have to make. And and that creates all sort of sustainable issues as well. For example, in transportation, I worked a lot on how can we regulate transport better? How can we make sure that everybody has access, but at the same time focus also on sustainable goals as well? Now, what I love about your research is there is a big applied element to it. And you've been involved in a a very large project, which we're going to talk about now over the next few minutes, which is Ireland, not, you know, uniquely or peculiarly, is very reliant on a number of key sectors that do involve the burning of fossil fuel. They have a a very big fossil dependence um, and most notably our energy sector. We import virtually most of our fuel in, in this country and have done for many, many decades. So we do have coal fire burning, uh, coal burning stations at Money Point in County Clare. There is a number of turf burning stations scattered throughout the Midlands. And it's that second piece that we want to talk about because that has had kind of almost an early foretaste of how you, know, how you can make this transition. Can it be done smoothly? Can it be done successfully? So can you just give me an idea, first of all, you know, what, what was the project about and what was the community that you were looking at? So the project's very much focusing on this peat industry, which is clearly coming to an end. And everybody in the community in the region knew that for a long time. But what happened is that the closure was uh, moved forward quite rapidly. So the closure of the peat industry came quite sudden after all. 
and that's to do with licenses, etc., etc. And what we were interested in, also if you compare it to uh, developments in the US, for example, where you have the, the Rust Belt, the areas where mining, the steel industry was booming, that seemed to have collapsed and has major implications for how people are voting, how they feel treated by the government. And Although on a smaller scale, the same might happen in the Midlands. This is a um, this this region is very dependent on the peat industry. It's always a community that feels distant from urban areas. From they often say that decisions are made in Dublin about them. So what we were looking at is this is clearly closing the peat industry has a huge impact on communities in the region in the Midlands. And you don't want people who are relying on peat industry in this case to feel left out, to feel um, treated unfairly. So what we were interested in is how can we actually um, change society and you have to close certain industry, but do it in a way that certain communities are not left out. And that's the main um, focus of this project. And what are we what are we learning? What are the kind of the top line takeaways you, you have at this stage from that project? So something I found really interesting, if you look at the history, people in those regions are extremely proud of the peat industry. It's part of their identity. It's almost part of their DNA. And they very, very um, um, sort of entangled in the whole field in the in the peat industry and if you take that away you nearly take a piece of their identity away and that's a problem because you can't very easily replace that and what i find very important is that if even if that's happening and everybody agrees that something that, that can't be stopped you still have to take into consideration this has huge impact on these communities and how might you deal with it now, what governments and, and industries are doing is actually creating programs. How can we compensate? How can we guarantee jobs? How can we ensure these regions are not um, uh, um, left behind, essentially? Left behind, yes. So what might you do to do that? And this research was very much focusing on how can we develop the future, the region, um, and what does the community itself think about that? And in terms of, obviously, we, we focus a lot on replacement industries. And there used to be a, an old refrain in the Irish financial crisis, which that you can't convert bricklayers to software engineers. And if you can't do it, you certainly can't do it overnight. And so there's always been that idea that when change comes, it can often be very rapid. And you don't really have much time to transition communities because that's a, a big piece of work. There's there's reskilling, there's education, there's the the financial piece which you've talked about there, and there's bringing in replacement industries. It's 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 you know one industry can leave, but actually bringing in another is an entirely different process. So which part of of the transition do you think has been the toughest, or, or are they all sort of equally sort of insoluble? Well, I think that you're you're absolutely right. This this transition takes an awful long time, and that's why you need to start planning way, way, way before any changes is made. And anticipating that might happen is crucial. And I think industry should really work on making sure there's contingency plans in place so that when change is necessary, they're actually prepared for it. 
At the same time, I think it's incredibly important to communicate with communities, with workers, with unions, so that you're not making decisions about them, but actually involve them in the change. How do they see the future? Uh, where might it go? How do they want to develop the region? Where do they see the economic benefits of it? And involving them in the decision is absolutely crucial. Now, one primary company in all of this, of course, was Bordnamona State-owned enterprise, which has a long and distinguished history in Ireland's industrial development. Was was the company itself very integral to this whole process? And how do you judge um, their contribution to it? I think Bordnamona is actually doing really well uh, at the moment. So I think in a way they were a little bit surprised by the sudden closure and and the fact that the industries was closed earlier than anticipated. But they're actually picking up now and talking a lot with the communities. We had the Just Transition report done by Kieran Mulvey. um, And they're actually really working now with communities and how that might develop in the future. But what I would have liked to see is they had thought about it and, and sort of anticipated that closure might happen earlier than expected. And do we run a risk here? I mean, I've introduced the topic at the start in my introduction of winners and losers, and I I deliberately did that to, you know, like all good podcasts to draw people in, okay? But maybe it's unhelpful. Maybe maybe that is the wrong way to think of things. Do do, do you have any opinion on that, Gertrude? Well, if you look at the the policies, there's there's something called just transition. You refer to that as well. And the aim of a just transition is actually to make sure that communities and individual workers are not disproportionately impacted by change. So what you ideally want to do is prevent that losers will actually be part of this. Um, and that's the aim of a just transition. So losers may, may always be there. What you try and do is actually avoid it or try and prevent that losers really become losers. The other issue I've mentioned in fleeting was the skills base of the workforce. And it goes beyond just the workforce, but people associated with them, their dependents, you know, children coming up through the school system and so on. The skill base of the area, when, when people come in and make these changes and, you know, we don't want to see it as an imposition, but when the change happens, are, are do people think those skills are transferable or, or do we say people will have to radically change out of the area they're currently in? How do we approach that skills question? That's a very difficult question. So we interviewed workers and asked them, okay, what skill set do you have and do you think your skills are transferable? And very often there was... A lot of issues with it. So there's people who are uh, going towards their pension and felt like, well, I can't change anymore. There's no, I can't develop into a new industry anymore. There's also people who said, well, I've been doing this this job, say a welder. I've been welding for a long time, but I don't have a diploma. I don't have the paperwork with it. So there's individual people have individual problems in the sector. And I think when you look at a Just Transition program, you have to make a tailor-made program for these individual problems. And in that sense, a one-size-fits-all approach won't work. Now, change, you know, is often... A very frightening word if you're, as you say, can be the winner or the loser from that process. It is a dynamic process that often throws off sort of people who are winners, losers, but also people who are in the middle in the neutral position. I mean, we've seen a lot of new technology coming in. 5G occurs to me because it's attracted the attention of some rather (laughs) eccentric conspiracy theories, and that's putting it mildly. And I mean, do you think there's any learnings for us here where, you know, 
new technology which we all trumpet in a different world on podcasts like this and elsewhere you know how they're introduced into communities and how they're framed is really vital and and then you can avoid the negative publicity and the the conspiracy theories that we see swishing around social media platforms and so on do you, do you have any thoughts on how we can do that process better so what i think when i see people who are very upset about these new technologies uh, and developing all these conspiracy theories, I think what we have to do is look a little bit deeper. So don't just focus on the things they say, don't just focus on the arguments, because what we've also seen in research is that very often the argumentation that people use um, is reflecting of their emotions. They may be afraid, they may be frustrated, they may not trust the government. So I think what we have to do is look a little bit deeper at what is underlying all these sentiments and all these uh, reasonings that you hear and once you looked into that I think you may better be able to address them and communicate with these groups of people and in that sense I think there's a, an important task for the government because very often what seems to be underlying um, these sentiments is a lack of trust in the government, a lack of feeling that people are listened to, that their concerns are taken seriously. So in that sense I think look deeper at what's behind all these reasoning. And did you get any sense, Gertrude, from either that research or other research you've done? Because you, you, you've looked at these um, contexts elsewhere and in other countries and other geographies and so on. Did you get a sense that the political system is responding to these things? You're saying they should look closer, they should keep digging down. I mean, we, we've often found Irish politics to be very localised. Some people would say clientelist in its kind of constellation. Do you think the Irish system is doing a good job here? Or, or, or have you seen any evidence one way or the other f from the research you've been doing? I think every government in, in most countries at the moment are struggling with it. You can see it in France with the movements there. I've seen demonstrations in the Netherlands against COVID. So I think it's happening across Europe. And in that sense, Ireland is struggling uh, as well with these issues. I suppose one of the big problems, personal view here, but I mean, is who are the authority sources anymore? I mean, that was a very easy question to answer back in the 70s or 80s or even 90s. There, there was a very clear kind of set of the way things get communicated down through a set of gatekeepers who pass them on down through. That's now been quite distorted. Social media has kind of upset that normal set of steps. Do you think the way information is transmitted is, is kind of part of this story? That could well be. That could well be. I think... Um it's also to do with consistency across the messages. So sometimes there's so many conflicting messages, it's very difficult to focus on one of them. Now, one of the things we want to try and do is get buy-in from local communities, but oftentimes, you know, what we think is sustainable, somebody else sees as a threat. And, and there's often a sense that those that are most economically vulnerable are being asked to bear a burden by people who are more comfortable. That's certainly a debate you see occurring in a lot of these areas that you're talking about. Is there any way to kind of get around the core problem that everyone understandably and will be all for all time sees everything through the prism of personal circumstance? It's very hard to get away from your own personal economic position. I mean, how do you deal with that issue? It seems to me to be that the core insoluble here is uh, anything that wants to change an economy and move it off in a different direction. Those who are who have per more at stake personally will have a different reaction to that change. 
Yeah, so that's a classic dilemma that, that a lot of um, studies also focus on. And obviously, individual concerns are incredibly important. But it doesn't mean that collective concerns are not important. So if you talk to people, they will think that public health, environmental issue, uh, issues, uh, the future generations, uh, creating a better world for everybody is actually incredibly important as well. So when you change the conversation and move away from only individual concerns, you actually might open the discussion and focus on what other things are important. And in that sense, I think very often the focus of communication from the government, from industry is addressing these individual concerns and they are important. But we should not forget that collective concerns, the environment, health issues are important as well to people and they honestly care about it. Yes, the other other area where you see this coming up is is in the whole agri area, agri business, but in the wider agriculture landscape, there's a really big tension point between the Green Party, I know in particular, have had a very hard job selling their core political message about moving to a more sustainable model in parts of rural Ireland. They they've acknowledged that themselves, where a lot of people who are involved in, you know, beef farming, for example, the production of milk and so on, really feel that, that certain green climate campaigners have got them in their in their kind of uh, target zone. So so that some of the stuff you're talking about is probably relevant and germane to that debate. Yes, absolutely. And I, I also think what we see over and over again in our research is you have to involve certain groups of people in the discussion. Don't talk about them. Don't make decisions on their behalf, but actually get them involved in how this is a problem. How can we reach a solution together um, and have certain groups like agriculture think about how they may be part of the solution rather than only focusing on them being the problem? And we've obviously looking at the Irish economy, it's not you know unusually different in its energy consumption than other European um, countries of its size, not, not a million miles away from the likes of the Belgians and Denmark and so on. But do you see, you've obviously delved into what's happening with the peat industry in the Midlands, but do you see this issue kind of flourishing again, like we're only kind of dealing with some of the early stages of this? I have mentioned some of the, the coal burning power stations, I've mentioned the aviation sector, I've mentioned the motor um, sector. I mean, do you see this kind of your work on the peat industry as only really a, an early foretaste of, of the kind of debates we're going to see here in Ireland? Yes, I think uh, still a lot of change is needed. And I think this is just the beginning of that. And in that sense, we, we still have a long way ahead of us. I'm pretty sure of it. And one of the issues that I had to one of your colleagues, Dr. Julie Byrne, on um, a few months ago, and she was talking a little bit about stranded assets, the idea that certain people have made investments and it's not just the wealthy they there could be pension funds there there could be charities and so on have have put their money into assets that are no longer as valuable as they once were as the carbon change goes on is that part of the debate as well or is that your research is based at communities but do you do you do you see something there that is going to need close attention by the political system and so on well i think if you look more holistically i think that everybody should be part of this debate and very often at the moment, decisions are made either by industry, the way they change technologies, or by governments, the way they change um, policies. But I think as a, as a society as a whole, we have to think about what do we want our society to look like and what type of change is needed 
to achieve that, but also what are we then willing to accept? So we may say we don't want all this renewable energy, we may not want all those wind, wind turbines in our landscape, but the consequences um, that will have a different society. So I think everybody and all sorts of groups should be part of this uh, holistic debate of what do we want our society to look like and what are we willing to compromise? Now, as you said, Gertrude, you're coming from a, a psychological background in terms of that's where your core study was originally. There is all sorts of different disciplines wrapped up in this area. One of them is obviously the discipline of economics. And, you know, a lot of them would argue, although not exclusively by, by any means, but some of them would say that, you know, the rational economic actor is a utility maximizer. They, they you know, the best way to appeal to people is is by talking hard cash eventually, you know, to incentivize the changes in behavior. How do you react to that, which is, I suppose, a narrower kind of way of looking at some of the problems that you've been researching? Yeah, so the argument that um, utility maximizers are, um, that that's what people are, you hear it a lot. My main response is, but why can't we change people's behavior so easily then? If it's so easy to increase the price for something, we would have solved a lot of problems. So the reality is... Um, People find different things motivating. Money is not the only motivator to change behavior. Um, and another problem sometimes is that if you if you give people an incentive, it may not always be so very certain that they will get that incentive. So in that sense, the certainty of the incentive is important as well. Bottom line of the story is um, you can work with incentives like that, but there's a lot of nuances and details to take into consideration. Will they be effective? And we're 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 tapping into an age-old question in more my kind of area, which is communications and media and so on. Which is what what makes a persuasive message? And the debate has gone on for decades and probably centuries in other forms. Which is is a fear-based message more effective than uh, one that induces people or or tries to persuade them to change their behaviour for greater social goods. Um, you know, is it better to say to someone, you know, get get take up exercise so you you'll be thinner and look better, or is it better to say to them, take up exercise or you won't get a disease and die? You know, that's the old dichotomy. I mean, did you get any sense from your your research and and talking to communities in the Midlands and so on? What what messages kind of resonate better and or what ones are are likely to be more effective in making these transitions that you're talking about? So what we see in the research, it very much depends on people's characteristics. So some people will just be more sensible to fear-based messages, whereas others are more motivated by, you know, um, motivating them positively. So in that sense, it's a very difficult question to answer because it very much depends on who you're addressing um, at that point of time. What we do know is that fear-based messages tend to be pretty effective in the sustainable area. So trying to increase people's concerns and make them aware of what they might lose. Yes, that, that, that tends to predominate, I suppose. We're only trying a lot of these things out and, and your own work is, is kind of adding to the knowledge on this. What do you think is going to, the Midlands going to look like, the peat areas that you're talking about, those big amount of people, legions of them that have worked for Borden and Mona? I mean, overall, are you optimistic that they could be a, a good template for other communities to follow in the future? Or do you think that, look, this is just a one-off contextual piece, you know, other places will be totally different? What, what's, what's your kind of gut instinct at this stage? 
So I think it's very much open so far what will happen to the region. Bortnamona very much likes to uh, build wind turbines in the area, whereas the communities have very different ideas about creating a, a wilderness park, potentially with solar panels. So I think what they have to do is sit down together and, and try and work out a future um, that is realistic for everybody involved in this. But I think that model of actually communicating and involving the community in these decisions is a model that should be applied elsewhere as well. Yes, and look, if you take Ireland as a study alone, and I remember this myself, when the first wind turbines went up, uh, I suppose in the 90s, um, same again when the amount of commercial forestry was really ramping up, a lot of both of those phenomena were you know very roundly welcomed initially by a lot of communities people were very welcoming of them i get a sense just from kind of looking from the outside that there's been a little bit of a turn in some communities against both forest commercial forestry and also windmill developments which and wind turbine developments which you've mentioned first of all do you get that sense yourself and if if you do then do um why why do you think it might have drifted in in that direction well, what we see is that it's incredibly important that developments actually uh, fit with the community in terms of the economic impact, the environmental impact with their identity. And some communities feel that a wind turbine doesn't really fit in their environment, in their uh, community, whereas others might think about it differently. So a fit between the technology and the communities is incredibly important. And that's and that's why looking at their identity and creating some sort of pride about these these projects is so incredibly important. And also, isn't there good advice there for planners, for, as you said, governments, local authorities, crucially, um, commercial state-owned companies and so on, all the assortment of the arms of the state that you can't just arrive, put in a planning permission and expect to get consent of the local community and get buy-in and support. This needs to be work that's going on on a continuous basis. You need to be out explaining, rationalising, debating, etc., not just coming around in the weeks before a planning application goes in and knocking on a few doors at that stage. It, sometimes we seem to be very short-term in our thinking on this. No, absolutely. And, and something we've also seen is if you involve people and communities in the decision making, it doesn't always matter if they don't get their way, if they, they're overruled at some point. But the fact they were involved and they were actually um, able and allowed to express their concerns is already a really big part of the story. OK, well, listen, Gertrude. Good luck in your work. I think you will be <laughs> you'll find lots of research coming your way because this transition is happening. We want it to happen as smoothly as possible. As you've said, you've identified in our conversation other pockets of the economy where similar processes are going to get underway. So I think you'll be you'll be getting a few more phone calls before this process finishes out. I hope so. <laughs> OK, thank you so much. And as I said in the introduction, we've been looking at climate change in all its facets over recent months. You've added to that compendium of knowledge. Thank you very much for coming on Business Impact today. Thank you too. 